What do The Lord of the Rings, the movie Aquaman, and the Book of Samuel have in common? As different as these things are, one of the prominent themes in all of them is that people want a king. They want a leader, but not just any king. They want one who is strong, good, and just, and who will conquer evil enemies. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pratt, and welcome to Bible 805. You may be familiar with the stories of how Arthur Curry becomes Aquaman and Strider becomes Aragon, and in this lesson you're going to learn the history of how Israel got its first king. Now, before we talk about the king himself, and that's actually going to be, it's going to be a little while, uh, we need to do some review and really understand what comes before the king himself, because a king needs a kingdom. He needs a land, he needs a people. And so we're going to do a little bit of a review of where we've been so far in the great story of God creating a people for himself. We're going to look briefly at some timelines, at the geography, and at the political powers that were in control of the Middle East at that time. It's important to do this because oftentimes people look at Bible stories completely detached from anything that was going on around them. And we need to remind ourselves that these are stories about real people living in real times and places. Also, we tend to think that our challenges are unique, that nobody's lived at a time like we are living and nobody has the trials that we have. But sadly, that's just not true. Now, this isn't to belittle any of our struggles, but to assure us that nothing happens now or in any of the processes in our lives that surprises God. So let's now review the timeline of where we are in our study. Of course, we start with creation and then the flood and then the Tower of Babel, and then after all of this takes place, God calls Abraham to be the father of the people through whom he will eventually bring his Redeemer Jesus into the world. Abraham has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of them, Joseph, is sold as a slave. He goes to Egypt where he's a servant, and then he's actually a prisoner. But God uses him to save all of Egypt from a great famine, and not only to save the people from Egypt, but his family, who later comes to Egypt to buy grain. He's reconciled with his family. All of them move to Egypt. For a time, it's very pleasant and things go well. But then, as it says in the Bible, there arose a king who didn't know Joseph, and the Israelites become slaves. They are slaves slaves in Egypt for around 400 years. And then most people are familiar with the story of how Moses takes them out of Egypt in the Exodus. They get right to the borders of the promised land, and they don't trust God enough to protect them in the battles to go into it. Because they didn't trust God, God said, you've got to wander in the desert for 40 years. So they do that. Then when that's over, Joshua takes them into the promised land, and they conquer it. However, they didn't conquer all of it. And we saw then in the book of Judges how the people that were left in the land were constantly a source of temptation and sin for them. They would oppress Israel for a time, then a judge would be raised up who would conquer the people, then as soon as the judge died they would go back to living the way they did. And just a lot of horrible things happened in the book of Judges. But during all this God never gave up on his people. And we pick up the story in the book of Samuel that took place 
Biblical scholars aren't exactly sure of the timeline, but sometime around right after when Samson died, we read about we start reading the story of Samuel. Now, before we get into the specifics on him, I want to tell you just a little bit about the books that you're going to be reading if you are following along with the reading plan. Because from just reading one book at a time, all of a sudden it's going to switch where you're reading two and three books at a time. And what will be happening is we will be reading first and second Samuel. Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, but at the same time, we're going to be reading 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Now, this is, you, you need to understand a little bit about this so it doesn't get really confusing or, or seem to not mean anything. 1st and 2nd Samuel were written not terribly long after the events occurred. They were written early in the history of the Israelite people. Chronicles, however, is probably the last book of the Bible written, and I'm referring to it as a book because originally it was just one. We now have it um, broken into First and Second Chronicles. Chronicles was the last book of the Bible, probably the last book of the Bible written, and it was written by Ezra. And in many ways, and it was also written after the Babylonian captivity. The people had come back into the land. Ezra was teaching them, and of course he wanted them to know their history. It's also, interestingly enough, it is the book of the Bible that covers the longest period of time. Chronicles actually starts out with Adam and Eve and it goes all the way to the exile and the return of the Jews. So it covers the whole span of Old Testament history. Now, even though it tells many of the same stories as Samuel and Kings, it's also very different. And I really encourage you to read it slowly and carefully and notice the differences because Chronicles only focuses on Judah when the kingdom splits into Israel and Judah. And if you're not familiar with the Bible stories, don't worry about it. We'll we'll go into that section in more detail. But when it splits, it's split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and Chronicles is only about the southern kingdom. It's also different in that it is it has a whole lot in it about the temple and about the priesthood and who were the singers and who did this and who did that. And this, of course, is very natural because Ezra was a priest. He was uh, he was a teacher in the temple. And so, of course, he emphasizes this. But one other thing in it that I think is, is really interesting is Chronicles is in many ways much more of what I would call a graceful book, as in you know, biblical term grace. And what I mean by that, for example, the sins of David are not mentioned. It it talks about uh, him as a great king, but his sin with Bathsheba is not even mentioned. And I think that's very interesting in that he repented of that sin. God says he puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so this book written about him much later does not have his sin mentioned in that. At the same time, you'll also be reading the book of Psalms. And this is, and, and it's kind of interesting to see where the people that put together the timeline where they, they put the different psalms and some of them are pretty obvious and they make a lot of sense and it's really interesting to see where different psalms are placed of course David wrote many of the psalms but he didn't write all of them and I think you'll learn a lot about the psalms and their historical context in this and that's that's one of the really neat things about this reading enough introduction let's now jump into the book of Samuel the book starts with the story of Samuel's 
mother, Hannah, and she was one of two wives of a man named Elkanah, who we find out actually in Chronicles, who was a Levite, and he appeared to be a very godly man. Every year he would go up and he would offer sacrifices at the temple that was at Shiloh at the time. And remember, this was a very, overall, it was a very evil time. A lot of bad things were going on in the nation, but he was a man who was very regular in his worship of God. And Hannah didn't have children. The other wife tormented her and was really mean to her, but her husband was very kind to her and honored her. And one year when they were up at the temple, she's praying. She says, God, if you will please give me a son, I will return him to you and he will serve you all of his days. And her prayer is answered. Samuel is born and she fulfills her promise of when he's old enough she takes him to the temple and she gives him to Eli the priest who would raise him. The book of Samuel records her prayer of praise and let me read just a little bit of this to you. She says how I rejoice in the Lord how he has blessed me for I have an answer now for my enemies for the Lord has solved my problem. How I rejoice for all the earth is the Lord's and he has set the world in order. He will protect his godly ones, but the wicked shall be silenced in darkness. No one shall succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord shall be broken. He thunders against them from heaven. He judges throughout the earth. He gives mighty strength to his king and gives great glory to his anointed one. Her prayer is very similar to the prayer that Mary will pray when she finds out that she's going to have Jesus as her son. But it's a it's a real prayer of praise and dependence on God. And we know sort of the rest of the story for Hannah is God blesses her and she has additional children. But now back to Samuel, who's being raised by Eli the priest. Now he was the chief priest who was ser- serving at the tabernacle at Shiloh at the time. Unfortunately, his sons were very evil. It said that they took the best part of the meat and they slept with the women who came to worship. And in many ways, what one commentator said is they were copying the practices of the Canaanites around them. Needless to say, God was very displeased by their actions. Eli is sent a prophet to warn him that he needs to get his house in order apparently he doesn't really do anything about it. Now Samuel's a little boy and he's growing up and there's this very divided household and we don't know a whole lot of what it was like but God's hand was obviously on him and one night as he's laying in bed he hears a voice calling his name and he jumps up and he runs to Eli and he thinks that Eli needs him for something and Eli says no I didn't call you go back to bed and it happens again and I think it's either the second or third time Eli realizes realizes that God is calling him and he says well just just go back to bed that's God and when he when you hear yourself being called again you just say speak Lord for your servant heareth and I remember when I was a little kid and I heard this story and I always really wanted to serve Jesus from you know from when I was a little kid on but I remember laying in bed and thinking speak Lord for your servant heareth speak Lord for your servant heareth and that was just something that I would pray as as a little kid but uh, I did not hear the Lord speaking verbally to me but Samuel did and the Lord said to Samuel he said you have got to tell Eli that you know 
his the, the sins of his sons have, have become too much. They're going to die. His line is going to be cut off. And it was a really, really difficult message. And so, obviously, the next morning, Eli is very excited. Obviously, God is speaking again to his people, and he wants to know what God said. And Samuel doesn't want to tell him. But uh, Eli says, no, you must tell me. And so Samuel delivers the message and it says he told him everything the Lord said. Now, I think that was a really pivotal time in Samuel's life and not maybe the greatest way or I shouldn't say the greatest. It, it was great in God's eyes. wasn't probably one of the most exciting things for Samuel as a way to start a ministry. And the reason I'm saying that is because he had to start out by saying something, uh, saying words of judgment and really difficult words to the man who was raising him. And I think it shows his courage, and we see that throughout the rest of his life. Samuel didn't back down from anything. He was he was a pretty tough guy. But it also re- reminds us that serving God isn't always about delivering happy messages. Sometimes we need to tell the truth to people even when they don't want to hear it. And that can be really difficult, and we always have to approach times like that with a tremendous amount of humility and prayer, because we don't ever want something that just bugs us to uh, for us to use that as an excuse to yell at people or, or to, to be unkind to people. But if we feel like the Lord really wants us to point out to a sin, a sin in someone else's life, if we love them, and if we are really being a caring brother or sister in Christ, we need to say something. God is always true to his word. What he says will happen, and the message was fulfilled. The Philistines attack the Israelites, and at first they're victorious, but then they panic, and they decide that if they can bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, that they'll have victory. Now that alone was a very wrong thing to do. The Ark of the Covenant was one of the chief articles that they were to use in worshiping God. It was only to be accessed once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. It was not probably, it was the most sacred object in the tabernacle. And here they are using it like a magic charm. And so they carry it out into the battle. At first the Philistines panic and then they they say, oh no, let's, you know, let's go ahead and, and charge and take this. And not only are many, many in Israel killed, not only is the battle lost, but the Philistines capture the ark. When the battle is over, a messenger runs into the city and it says Eli was sitting by the gate waiting to hear word. And the messenger says to him, the ark of God has been captured and your two sons have been killed. And it says Eli fell backwards, broke his neck and died. And just, uh, you know, really a tragic, tragic thing that happens there. Now, one other little bit of, if you will, uh, biblical trivia that takes place at this time, and that is where Eli's daughter-in-law, one of his son's wives, is at this time giving birth to their child, and unfortunately she's dying in delivery, but before she dies, she says, name her child Ichabod. That's where the name comes from, Ichabod, like an Ichabod crane, but what the name means is really sad. It means the glory has departed. The ark of God had been captured. The glory had departed. 
Now, even though the Philistines had captured the ark, God, of course, is still protecting it. They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And it says when they came in the next morning, there uh, the idol was fallen over on its face, and then they set it back up, and then it falls over on its face again, and its arms and legs break off, and they realize, oh my goodness, something is going on here. So they move it to another city, the, the, one of the Philistine cities. They had five cities, and they move it to another city, and terrible things happen. It says that they're struck with a plague of mice, and that also, it's kind of, it's not really funny, but it's kind of funny there in the Bible. It says they were stricken with tumors in the groin. Now, we don't know exactly what they are, but they were probably they were pretty bad apparently because the people then send um, the ark to another city and it goes to another city and finally they come to the conclusion it it actually takes 7 years for them to do all this moving around but they finally come to the conclusion that this is not something they want to keep and so they send it back to Israel where it stays at Kiriath Jearim for 20 years until David takes it to Jerusalem. Now, what's kind of interesting is, okay, the ark is down there, but at the same time, some interesting things are happening because the tabernacle was up north in Shiloh. They didn't take it back to exactly where the tabernacle was, and and we we don't really know why, but what had happened with the tabernacle is after the Philistines had captured the ark, apparently the Israelites knew that they were going to be coming to destroy the tabernacle as a whole after that. So from what we surmise, and this isn't spelled out in exact detail in the Bible, but other uh, scholars and historians say what it seems happened is they dismantled the tabernacle and they moved it to a city named Nob. And this city is just north of Jerusalem and they reassembled it there because it then says that the Philistines totally destroyed Shiloh. But we know that there was also a tabernacle at Nob, so that's why they're assuming that everything was moved there. So the tabernacle is at Shiloh, the ark is at Kiriath Jearim, and so apparently during those 20 years of time, they were, even though they did sacrifices and various things, they were not able to do all of the complete worship that God wanted them to. In a, they couldn't um, observe the Day of Atonement. And that didn't happen again until David moved the ark from there into his tabernacle in Jerusalem. Samuel now, though, is leader of Israel. And it says in 1 Samuel 3, 19, It says, As Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and the people listened carefully to his advice. All Israel, from one end of the land to the other, knew that Samuel was going to be a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord began to give him messages there at the tabernacle at Shiloh. This was before it was destroyed, and he passed them on to the people of Israel. He apparently united all of the people, and he led them as a whole. At one point, he said to to them he wanted to assemble all of Israel at Mitzpah, and he said, I will intercede with the Lord for you. And while he was sacrificing a burnt offering, the Philistines drew near, and I'll pick up where it talks about it in the Bible, but it says that they drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out 
out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them all the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem, and he named it Ebenezer, another Bible trivia name, if you will. But this one means, hitherto has the Lord helped us. And he continued, and we don't we don't have, it's, it's kind of um, frustrating because we don't have a lot of details of Samuel's life, but he, he did continue to lead. Israel continued to be victorious against the Philistines all of his life. Samuel actually was also a judge. It says that he it does tell us that he had a circuit where he would go around to different cities. He would ride to them. He would judge the people. He also started a school of prophets who were uh, trained to go around and teach the people. So he really led a huge revival in Israel during his lifetime time passes, Samuel grows old, and he had a couple of sons that he wanted to follow in his footsteps. He appointed them as judges, but sadly, it says they took bribes and perverted judgment. This is when the people come to Samuel and say, we want a king. We want to be like all the other peoples. We want a king who will lead us in battle and who will help us be victorious. This was absolutely crushing to Samuel. For one thing, he was still their leader. And for another, he recognized that God was truly their king. God is the one who had given them all their victories. All these other nations had kings. And God still was able to conquer them. He was the one who brought them victory. But they didn't see it that way. They wanted a king to be like all the other people. Samuel pours out his heart in prayer to the Lord, and the Lord says, Samuel, they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to anoint a man named Saul to be a king, but then also you are to teach them all of the responsibilities that they will have once they have a king. It isn't just that the king will lead you in battle, but he will tax you. He will take your children to be his servants. He will take young men to be his soldiers. None of this matters to the people. They still want a king. So he will shortly anoint Saul to be their king. Now, that's the next part of the great story that we're going to talk about. We're going to go into next all of the things about Saul as a person, as a man, and why his kingship didn't last. But before we do that, for uh, this year that I'm going through the lessons, next week is Palm Sunday, and the week after that's Easter. So I'm going to do a couple of lessons on Easter, and I'm going to be talking about the last words of Jesus. That you know, that when when someone's about to die, and especially if they know they are, and of course Jesus did, we treasure their last words. And these are some of the most lengthy passages we have of what Jesus said. In starting in John 13 and continuing through John 17, we have a lot of things that Jesus said to his disciples, and we're going to talk about them and in in light of Easter and some of those kind of neat things. So we're going to take a little parenthesis from our history here. But then after that, we will get back into the story of Saul. 
I want to conclude this introduction with some, I think, rather challenging applications for us. And to do that, I want to refer back to what we talked about previously on typology. And if you haven't listened to that lesson, uh, please go back to the podcast that's on it. But what a type is, it's a story of how God is doing, well, doing something now, but it also is in many ways a prophecy of what he will do in the future. For example, one of the the types that we talked about a lot is how in the Old Testament, the lambs were sacrificed as a covering for sin, and this was a type of how Jesus was going to come along, and he would be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Now, the type that we see here that's very interesting is God has been creating for himself ever since the time of Abraham a people for himself people who are going to serve him who will serve as his representatives to the world this group of people that God formed really reached their high point under the kingship of King David which we'll be getting to very shortly David was the king that was a man after God's own heart he was the ideal king He is the one that often later in scripture, they would talk about the Messiah who would be like King David. And he is constantly, Jesus is constantly referred to as the son of David. Now that whole story of the forming of the people and then them living under the rulership of God's perfect king, that is a picture of what God is doing now. All of us who are believers, God is forming us into a people who will one day be in reality servants of King Jesus who will rule forever. Now we are spiritually now, but it isn't like that on our earth overall. But that's what's coming. And Second Peter 2.19 says of us right now, he says, but you, he's speaking to all Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in Revelation, when human history is wrapped up, it says, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You realize when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In many ways, that's a recognition that we are growing together as a people of God who will one day see God's kingdom here on earth in all of its fullness. Now, it might take some time. They're obviously in between, just like there there was for the, the children of Israel. There might be some good kings, and there might be some bad kings, and there might be some unjust ones, and there might be people in charge of our world that we're just saying, why, oh Lord, why do you let this happen? But we need to remember, God is in charge. King Jesus is coming. We can be sure of that we can be sure that a kingdom of good and peace will be established on earth and it will have no end. And while we're waiting, our prayer needs to be that we are his very best representatives that we can be until we serve him face to face.
That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format, and there's other associated material for you at www.bible805.com. And please do sign up for the newsletter while you're there. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.